Hello and welcome back to Reason for Hope. I hope you're having a great day today. Put all your stress and craziness of your life aside. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to touch our hearts today. Let's invite God into our lives to enlighten us and point us toward the truth. Thanks for tuning in. If you're new with us, welcome. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so and give us a good rating. This really helps us to get the word out and hit the share button. And join us on social media where we can keep you engaged through our music, our videos, and daily reflections. And by the way, all the music you're going to hear today is original, created by the Array of Hope team. So subscribe to us on Spotify and all the other music platforms. When I reflect and think about who God is, I'm overwhelmed by His beauty and His love. But most of us don't see or recognize the brilliance and the genius of God. All of the natural law meticulously planned and organized. The earth, all of its natural resources, all of us breathing oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide while the trees emit oxygen and need carbon dioxide. The plants that feed the animals, that feeds us, all of this to sustain us. Everything is designed in order for us to thrive. I've read that the odds for the universe to exist as it does is too high to count. As a matter of fact, if anything would have been created slightly different, we would not exist. Yet God conceived it and he created it. It's God's genius. The creation of the Shroud of Turin is still a mystery to scientists today. The shroud is the burial cloth in which Jesus was wrapped in. They still cannot understand how the image of Christ was embedded on it. Many have concluded that the only way that the image could have printed itself on the shroud was through this extremely bright, intense beam of light, like a laser that radiated from Christ's body through the shroud, leaving the image of Christ behind on it. This energy, this intense beam of light cannot be recreated by man today. Also, most recently scientists were able to photograph the moment of conception and have seen a sharp beam of light exactly at the moment of conception. This is crazy. God leaves us clues to his existence. It's no accident that God shows himself through his brilliance and his light when life begins. That's his genius. There are so many things that we don't understand, but we can trace God's genius and brilliance through his creations and the purpose for them. When you think of the complementarity between men and women and how God designed men and women as two pieces of the same puzzle, it's brilliant. Sometimes we forget the genius of it all. So we're going to talk about God's genius today in designing women the way he did and how women have their own genius, the feminine genius. Our guest is Dr. Deborah Savage. She is amazing. So welcome to Reason for Hope. And here we go. Okay, so here we are once again with Dr. David Heideck, our Director of Theology here at Array of Hope. We're super pumped. We always like to talk about the truths of our faith and show how St. John Paul's teachings shed light on them. 
So today's topic is, uh, I don't know, Dave, something I hate to admit, the feminine genius. Uh, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I, I got to take that back. Uh, listening. Well, <laughs> I got to take it back because listeners, if you don't know me, I am kidding. But it is about something pretty cool. Uh, the feminine genius. So, you know, Dave, let us know what, what does that mean? Well, in his apostolic letter, Mulieris Dignitatum, on the dignity and vocation of women, St. John Paul II highlights how woman is to be found at the center of the salvific event. That's when the Word of God, Jesus, the eternally begotten Son of God, becomes flesh. Mm -hmm. So, St. John Paul II really emphasizes this phrase, born of a woman, which he quotes from St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. The thing that I think is important to recognize is that the exalted vocation of woman uh, is right in that phrase, that Jesus was born of a woman. And so the Blessed Virgin Mary, of course, is the woman par excellence. So John Paul II places the vocation of woman right smack dab in the middle of the redemptive work of Christ. And yeah, it's interesting because Mary's relationship to Jesus is a relationship that only a woman can have. She has a relationship to him as a mother to a son. So her femininity isn't absent here. And so there's a link somehow between the fullness of femininity, which we see in the Blessed Virgin Mary, and motherhood. So all women in some way are called to be mothers by the very fact of being a woman, whether they have, you know, physical children or not. Every woman religious is a mother. Women in their various professions are so as mother. So this is an important, I think, feature that John Paul II is drawing out that's somehow deep within femininity. Mm-hmm. Um, an interesting additional point, I think, is that Mary's also the spouse of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit overshadows her, and it's by the Holy Spirit's power that she conceives. So Mary is both bride and mother. And this feminine reality is manifested in her as a, as a type or figure of the church itself, which is the bride of Christ, the one through which, as mother, Christ gives life to children of God as they pass through the birthing waters of baptism. So on some level, this reality of being a bride is part of femininity too, whether or not the woman's in fact married. The spousal reality can be manifested even in a life of virginity. The holy virgins saw themselves as betrothed to the Lord, right? Mm. So being a spouse is the dedication of one's whole life, the total gift of self to a person, whether to an earthly husband or to God. And, and that total gift of self is for some mission of service. And so this is really manifested in woman in a powerful way. So, Dave, that's really uh, beautiful the way you explained it. I mean, woman has distinctive characteristics. I mean, I mean, often our culture will sort of dismiss that. But my question to you is that what do you see as the key feminine characteristic in play here? Well, I think that there are a few. Uh, first, I would say is receptivity. John Paul II really 
emphasizes this. Mary is the one who receives, and she gives consent to this receiving at her fiat. That's her, let it be done to me. Mm -hmm. So I think a key component of the feminine genius is this receptivity, this fiat, this yes. Woman as mother and woman as bride, by the way, both indicate a receptivity, um, an openness to the other and a receiving of the other. St. John Paul II discusses this in the letter when he reflects on how the bridegroom is the one who loves, and the bride is the one who is loved. He very much sees the masculine as an initiator of love and the feminine as a receiver of love in order to return love. So that's very interesting. So receptivity, that's the first characteristic. And another characteristic is related. Women are ordered to the personal. So what do I mean by this? They recognize needs. You know, even consider how the Blessed Virgin Mary is the one who noticed that there was no wine at mm. the wedding at Cana before anybody else recognized it, right? So women recognize things. They see things that, that others don't see, that men don't see. So what you're saying is they have an innate sense. They have an acute uh, sensitivity to things, right? Yes, absolutely, and particularly to the needs of, of persons. Mm-hmm. So think about even women, how we think about women. They, they tend to wounds, right? They're sensitive to feelings. They're, they're actually more mindful of the consequences of certain words and actions on relationships. You know, like uh, I, it might be like me to plow ahead, right. you know, because I have the goal in sight. And, and yet my wife will say, whoa, tunnel vision. <laughs> you know, this could happen. That could happen. That might offend this person. You know, right. you to be careful. Like the, that's just a sensitivity that—, that woman has. Um, you know, I think it's often been said that men immediately like to cut to the chase and fix things, right? Right. They get into a lot of trouble with the women in their life by acting that way instead of taking it slow and listening and being open because women want to be heard and don't want to be fixed. Mm-hmm. But men want to fix things. So we don't listen as well. And I think that's in part because we're less receptive and less ordered to the personal. You know, um, men tend to be uh, more distracted and less available to people, I think. So it's, it's no wonder that women generally tend towards work that involves nurturing and caring for others. I think that that comes very naturally to them because of, of how they're disposed by virtue of their femininity. Of course, uh, this receptivity to the person is written right into the woman's body, too. Her body receives the man in sexual union and receives a child from that union. There's a, a fiat, a yes, a consent to the person, to, to the man and union with the man, but also to the person that results from that union. So, um, so I think that it's interesting St. John Paul II would draw this out, that 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 receptivity and that being ordered to the personal is written right into the very body of woman. Mm-hmm. You know, just one one further thought. I, I think a, a mother's role in educating the children is also very unique and different than a man's, you know. Uh, women are interested, I think, in the overall development of their children. So in particular, I think um, that they educate in humanity. Mothers provide a humanizing component. Does that make sense? Mm. I, 
of fathers, again, we can get very goal-oriented, right, or task-oriented. So we can become, I think, a little bit too concerned with our kids being successful. Are they doing all the right stuff? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think that we can be very, very output-driven. Mm-hmm. But uh, moms less so. Right. They're more concerned about the sort of people their kids are becoming. Right. And um, and are more sensitive to the the integral development of their children. Mm-hmm. Not that dads aren't, but you know what I mean. Like dads can get really kind of centered and focused on right. the the end goal. And again, not really be attentive. Yeah. Um, yeah it, it, it always comes from the mom. Don't forget to say thank you. You're welcome. Be kind to people. You're right. It, it doesn't often come from the father. It's like the mother is always reminding the husband, come on, say it. You know, let your let your kid know. Well, you know, it's it's interesting that you uh, that you <laughs> because I I also think that women and this goes back to maybe the spouse aspect of the feminine genius that women call men to hire to hmm. be more. They have a humanizing effect on men to to reach their potential in a way. Right. You mm. know, I think that there's a there's something in woman that that helps men to become more civilized, mm-hmm. you know? And they also call us to responsibility, I think, in a way, I, um, especially when that responsibility is to another. Like, they, they'll call us to do more. I mean, the amount of times when, when a woman in my life, my wife, my mom would say, well, can you do this for so-and-so? Or, mm-hmm. you know, your dad needs you to do, like, you see, there's like this call Right. To to do something for another person that we might not notice, but they're calling us to it. It's interesting. Back to the wedding of Cana story. What does Mary do? She goes to Jesus and she says, uh, can you do this for them? Right. Not that Jesus needs to be called to greater responsibility, but she's acting in relation to Jesus, who is masculine, in a feminine way. She's calling him right. to fulfill himself, to be all that he's supposed to be. Yeah. So I think that that's really, really interesting. It is. Um, you know, uh, another component of this connected to this idea of men being who they should be is that men are supposed to be spiritual leaders in their families, and yet so many men lag in the spiritual area. I mean, I think it's much more common, would you say, it's much more common to find a wife who cares about faith, right. who tries to pass it on to the kids, and a husband who's kind of along for the ride, mm-hmm. you know? So he's not getting in the way, but he's not taking a lead role. He's kind of letting her do her thing. Perhaps he's not even really all that interested. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very common thing to see. It's interesting because it does uh, sort of affirm your point that women see things differently where they see the need of the spiritual component in one's life where a man may not immediately recognize that. At least that was for me, you yeah. know, and uh, the woman will bring that to the forefront and say, hey, you know, you need this part of your life as well. Honestly, I think that the fact that men fail as spiritual leaders is a consequence of original sin somehow. Mm. I think there's an unwillingness to take responsibility for spiritual leadership and and almost to become more focused on the material, like on work, on providing, on status or class. Like, you know, men get really kind of wrapped up with that. But due to women having this genius of receptivity and especially receptivity to the personal, 
and to them having that humanizing role in the mm-hmm. educating of their children, I think they wind up being more receptive, like you're saying, to the spiritual and to faith. Mm-hmm. The great tragedy of today's brand of feminism, which I would actually call a pseudo-feminism, is that it basically denies these uniquely feminine characteristics and in a way almost like turns them upside down. You actually alluded to this before. Right. The feminism that's promoted almost everywhere you turn in movies, TV shows, music, commercials, magazines, and even in Washington, D.C., is one that tells women they should be the same as men and act like men, Mm. whether in regard to sex, to family life, professional life, what have you. The irony is that while this pseudo-feminism tries to proclaim how much being a woman matters, it effectively says it's meaningless. I mean, this leads to a strange world, really, where gender means nothing and everything at the same time. Wow. The true feminine genius is what our world so desperately needs. And based on what we've been talking about, you can see the essential and critical role that women play in society. Mm -hmm. They have a humanizing role in every facet of society. And, and, And in a way, their gift to society is to remind society of its need to be ordered to the personal, Mm -hmm. to be paying attention to the needs of persons, particularly to be attentive to that and to be attentive to to persons who are on the margins, I think, especially. Um, The ones that go unnoticed, right? Because they notice. Mm. Um, There's an interesting quote from Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who is one of my heroes, He said this, he said, men build civilizations, women build cultures. Hmm. I think there's a lot of truth in that. So Dave, there is a beautiful complementarity in all this, men and women, right? Uh, And how they work together. Uh, But we didn't really talk about the masculine genius. I mean, there's got to be a masculine genius, right? No? Maybe harder to (laughs) to find. (laughs) Come on, please say right, Dave. (laughs) I got to have something. So, so, uh, you know, I think that we could say that there's, from the beginning, a masculine genius because when God creates Adam and he places him in the garden, he gives Adam the charge to protect the garden and to cultivate it. So I think that you can see right there something of a masculine genius that men are called to protect and to build. And then, of course, you see in Jesus Christ, who is the perfect man, the self-sacrificing love that men are supposed to have. And in fact, St. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians that husbands are to love their wives even as Christ loved the church and delivered himself up for her. So that's not everything we can say. And uh, and perhaps we'll have to save more on the masculine genius for a future episode. Um, but that gives a little taste of some of the characteristics, I think, that we could consider the masculine genius. That's awesome, Dave. Thanks a lot for hanging and explaining and, and really sharing the importance of this subject. Well, it's great to be here. And I hope that the listeners really benefited from today. The music theme of this podcast actually comes from one of our songs, one of our singles. It's called Hope Can Last Forever. Here's a little sample of it. Check it out.
So today, our podcast featured guest is Dr. Deborah Savage. She is a member of the faculty of the St. Paul Seminary School of Divinity at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, where she teaches philosophy and theology. She is a student of St. Thomas Aquinas and a recognized scholar of the work of Carol Wojtybois, who happens to be our patron saint, St. John Paul II. Deborah speaks regularly on topics of the feminine genius. She is not only an intellectual and an apostolic powerhouse, but she is a woman of wit, humility, and overflowing love as well. Let's welcome Dr. Deborah Savage. So, Dr. Deborah Savage, hi, how are you? How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Great, great. So nice to have you with us, and I have a... uh, handful of questions that I want to ask you and have you share with our audience. So I guess to start, uh, let me know a little bit about you. I mean, uh, you know, did you go to Catholic school, your family, your upbringing, you know, just to get a little bit of a backstory on on, on who you are. Sure. sure. So I was born Catholic, born and raised, uh, oldest of six. And um, I'm a wife and a mother. Those are my <laughs> defining characteristics, I'd say. Um, and let's see, I actually spent 25 years in business, uh, before deciding to get a PhD in, uh, my PhD is actually in religious studies, but my degree is in both philosophy and theology. I had my own consulting firm and all that. Um, and, and anyway, ended up coming home one day and telling my husband, that I had to close up my, my <laughs> consulting firm and go to go to graduate school. How did he How did he respond? Oh, he was anything I wanted to do. He's been my greatest friend and supporter, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people knew that I wasn't quite filled out, if you will, by the work I was doing. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, that's that's how that all that happened. I guess I want to add that I never in my wildest dreams expected to teach at a seminary, which is what I do now. I teach mm-hmm. mostly philosophy at the St. Paul Seminary School of Divinity. Right. And I had fully expected I would teach business ethics or something. But God had a different plan, apparently. I, it must have been his plan because it wasn't mine. Mm. And so here I am. Beautiful. So was there a point in your life where you, you felt that God was really uh, speaking to you? I mean, tell, tell us a little about that, that moment. Okay. Uh, well, I guess, yeah, there was a, a few years there, especially after I, I moved away from my birthplace, which was California, and moved to Colorado, mostly for the skiing, and kind of <laughs> left things behind. I didn't have a parish community or my mom hovering over me. <laughs> so one day, a friend of mine that I worked with asked me if I would be her proxy godmother. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, I know exactly how it goes, and everything will be good. And so we walked into the church for the rehearsal, and the moment that that you want to know about is the moment when I opened the door Mm. to the church. I said, don't worry about a thing. I've got this covered. I know exactly what to do. She was kind of nervous. And I opened the door and the words that came absolutely unbidden to me were, where have you been? Wow. It was, it was like a, it was like a wind hit me Mm. in the face. I'm not kidding. It was so astonishing. I, I took a deep breath because I was so stunned. 
Wow. And that's all it took. I went, oops, sorry. <laughs> I, okay, I got it. So I, that's good enough for me. So that was, I suppose that was the moment. But ever since, really, it's been one real moment after another. And then when I started to study theology and the works of Aquinas, I just, uh, the more I'm at it, the further in love with the church and the, and our faith I fall. It's the most astonishing treasure. Mm-hmm. And there's no way to plumb the depths of it completely. So um, I want to ask you, so the Catholic Church is often viewed as oppressive towards women and uh, not really equal in value as a man in the church. And our patron saint here, St. John Paul, held women in high esteem. He wrote an apostolic letter to women called Molieris Dignitatum. And he coined the expression, the feminine genius. And and our topic today is the feminine genius. And I know that you spoke and wrote a lot about this. Can you share this with us? Yes. Um, Well, I think we have to sort of begin at the beginning. In Genesis 1 and 2, which is where JP2 focuses his exegesis on these questions, what we see in the first account is um, uh, the creation of of man. Let us make man in our image. Uh, and, And then the next thing he says is male and female, he created them, right? So the in that first Genesis account, we see God creating man and woman out of a unity of personhood that reveals virtually immediately that woman is not an inferior creature. She possesses the same dignity as the male of the species. Um, It'd be incorrect to say she's equal because equal is a mathematical concept that means the same. That is that wouldn't be the right word, but they are what the philosophers would say ontologically equivalent. They have the same uh, uh, personal structure. Uh, they have a union; they're a union of body and soul, both of them. And what this tells us in philosophical terms is that both man and woman are what the philosophers would say instantiations of the same substantial form, which is fancy language you're saying we're both equally human. And that means we possess both in equal measure intellect, will, and freedom. Woman has agency just as man has agency. So the first thing you have to establish really is that woman is her own agent. She's equal to man in that in that sort of qualified sense. Before you can start to talk about what differentiates her, you have to be clear that she's equally human to man. So in the second account, um, you begin to see in that account, the second creation account, what differentiates man and woman. And what I say is that it isn't, and this is, follows JP2 as well, it isn't until woman is created that the, the man understands who he is. Hmm. And in the scriptural text, uh, it's the first time in the text when both man and woman are referred to in the Hebrew by the terms ish and isha, right. which is a reference to concretely existing persons. And in a certain sense, there is no ish, man, without isha. So this is this is profound that man and woman are created out of the same unity. Man is created first 
so he's in a sense primary. I like to think of him as the active principle. But that does not compromise woman's status, ontological status. She's his mirror image or complementary image because he says, oh, at last, here at last is bone my bones, flesh my flesh. Mm. So the genius of woman begins there by understanding that um, though, though Adam has been alone all that time, uh, his first contact with reality is of a horizon that mostly contains lower creatures, animals, plants, rocks. When woman appears on the scene, her first contact with reality is of a horizon that includes Adam. Mm -hmm. So woman has never lived, existed at all, in a world that wasn't already inhabited by persons. So woman sees the person first. And that is, and and obviously she's the bearer of life. This is what John Paul focuses on. She's Eve is the mother of all mankind. Women are naturally meant to be mothers, either spiritual or physical. My argument is that actually there's a prior moment in the text where we see woman appears, and the first thing she sees is man's face, and. From that moment on, what what we know is that um, woman's orientation towards persons is a part of her creation. It's it's not just because she has the physical capability of being a mother, although that's certainly true and a part of it. She's created to remind all of us of who we are. It's said that woman is uh, her gift is to recognize the potential in others and to help them to develop it. And so the, the, the genius of woman is um, such a profoundly true idea. Um, and what, what sometimes people kind of romanticize this or women sitting around complaining about their, how stupid their husbands are, <laughs> that they can't remember where they put their cell phone or their keys it's much more than that. It's it's um, it's actually an orientation toward this the primacy of the person, and and this is one reason why women's uh, voice is so necessary. Not radical, strident feminist voices, but women of faith mm-hmm. need to be heard because they are saying to the world that uh, all human activity must be ordered toward authentic human flourishing. You cannot make of yourself a gift to a bottom line or a project or even a clean home. The only uh, recipient of the gift of self is another person. And so when men get obsessed with, you know, achievement or money or, um, you know, task, this task orientation that we all have to admit they have, which is itself a genius, a value, that we should talk about further. There's a masculine genius too. But a woman's job for sure is to remind everyone 
that what counts is human flourishing. You know, listening to you, um, I get a, a, a I get a sense of sadness because the church doesn't really articulate this beauty. It doesn't, you know, we, priests no. don't share from the pulpit. Uh, and as I opened it up this question, it seems like the Catholic Church, you know, is oppressive toward women, and it's really not. It's just oh, no. a, a false uh, understanding of what's really happening. And uh, yes. the way you explained it is just so beautiful. How can how can we get it out there? How can the church really you know, shout from the mountaintops this beautiful teaching. Well, this is my project, to tell you the truth. And I think what's really needed is to ground uh, what I refer to as a theology of complementarity. I'm actually working on that and trying to develop a theology of complementarity that is philosophically robust in such a way that it's indisputable this teaching is absolutely derivable from scripture. Wow, that sounds and awesome. And from the church's philosophical tradition. But you see, women, it's absolutely true that women have been sidelined. We have to all admit that. In the letter to women that John Paul wrote in 95, he spends the first several pages apologizing, <sighs> acknowledging these facts and apologizing for them. So we're safe to include that in our understanding of what's taken place. What happened is the women's suffrage movement, the women's movement, uh, somehow connected with the sexual revolution, and the sexual revolution overwhelmed the, the, the absolutely legitimate concerns that women were expressing in the early 20th century, late 19th century. And in 1960, it became this free free sex movement. The history of this is really important to know. We don't have time for it. But my point is that um, uh, what's needed now are, as I said, women of faith who go deeply into these texts and into the uh, philosophical realism that grounds the church's teaching on everything to unearth and unpack and illuminate the 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 potential that the the church's teaching already possesses to to shed light on where woman belongs and so the women and men john paul ii says in um, the letter to women that uh complementarity is what gives us our mission which is as he says to create not only human families but human history itself so uh there has been an imbalance in history that the, the women's movement, unfortunately, uh, has not helped to correct. The radical feminist movement that became so prominent in the 60s completely sidelined it. Yeah. And um, this is what many of us, uh, I have a, a quite a number of Catholic women friends and colleagues who are working to correct this difficulty, this problem. You, you sort of uh, briefly talked about the masculine gen- genius, yeah. too. Um, you know, share a little bit about on that so the men yes. don't feel left out here. I'd say that both the masculine and feminine genius are derivable from the second creation account. Mm. Because man, at the very beginning, man... The Hebrew word is ha adam, is is uh, in the in this uh, world occupied only by lower order creatures, as I said. So God brings to him everything to name it, right? And eventually realizes he's alone; he, nothing is matching him, and so that's when the a woman is created. But but prior to that moment, he is alone in the garden 
with what we might refer to as things. And uh, and this uh, incredible gift that he has to name things. And it's it's only uh, the man who's given a task. He's at 215. He's put in the garden to till it and to keep it. He's mm. the only one who gets a job. <laughs> Woman doesn't get a job. So, yeah, so my argument is that what this is the scriptural basis of the self-evident claim that men are more oriented toward things than toward people. Mm-hmm. And they're criticized for that. They have, you know, tunnel vision, they don't they don't think ahead, they forget they leave people out of the equation. And those are, I argue, effects of original sin. Right. Because in the end, after after the fall, man seems to t- to take everything as an object, including women. Right. So they, he's he's going to dominate her as though he can boss her around, own her, see her as his own property. But at the beginning, that wasn't so, because he said, "Oh, this is." This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is someone like me. You recognize this woman as a person. Right. But after the fall, this goes south. Okay. What people forget is that this capacity that men have for for this orientation toward things, towards towards um, uh, unearthing the resources that God gave us, to find, seeing the seeing what things are for. And making them, putting them at the service of human flourishing, this is man's gift. And, and, and I argue, and quite rightly, I would say that if it weren't for men, we would still be living in caves, afraid to come out. Hmm. And that men's incredible capacity for building things has, is what has sustained, built and sustained civilizations from the start. Hmm. And uh, there are so many examples of this. I mean, you you drive drive by by any construction crew. There might be a few women there holding signs, but for the most part, it's going to be guys. Ninety yeah. percent of the de- uh, work re- work related deaths are men. Wow. You know, so men are are um, we're doers. They're protectors. They're yeah. doers. Mm-hmm. They 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 put themselves in harm harm's way. Yeah. One scholar I read says that men know instinctively that they are the uh, expendable sex mm-hmm. because above all they must protect right. the woman who's who's who is whose existence is necessary. If uh, like when a a woman is the baby's not going to get born if the woman dies prematurely. But a man's job is to ensure that that doesn't happen. And so he puts himself in harm's way in order to protect the species. This is built into him. So when you see the first few minutes of Saving Private Ryan, for example, those men that stormed the beaches of Normandy, knowing full well there was every chance they wouldn't come back alive, or the Houston floods, or 9-11, the first responders at 9-11, this is what men do, and it, it makes me so sad and so angry to see how men are treated in our culture, accused of toxic masculinity. It's absolutely, oh my gosh, it's, it's just evil, hmm. because what we really should feel for men is gratitude, not, not ridicule, but gratitude, profound gratitude for the work that they do to sustain their families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's so much evidence of it. 
Well, that's beautiful. I mean, you said it. There's a complementarity between the two. God's infinite genius in putting yeah. creation together. So listen, uh, Dr. Deborah Savage, we thank you so much for uh, joining us here today. It's been a pleasure mm-hmm. and uh, a real delight just learning from you and, and sharing the faith with you. Oh, I'm, I'm happy to be with you. Very happy. So thank you for inviting me. Great, great. Peace. Thanks again for hanging with us today. So stay in touch with us throughout the week on social media, where we can keep you engaged through our music, our videos, and our daily reflections. And if you enjoyed this today, please share it and tell all your friends. This podcast has been made possible through our generous supporters and donors of Array of Hope. You can become part of the Array of Hope family by going to our donation page on our website at arrayofhope.net. Our guest next time will be Bill Donahue. Our theme is The Protector of the Church, and it's about St. Joseph. It's going to be a great episode. I want to thank my co-producer, David Heideck, and our engineer, Jack Garner, for putting all this together. So thanks so much for joining us today, and there's always a reason for hope. This is Mario Costabile. Until next time, peace. Peace.